Looking to level up your testing skills? Then go pro with Ministry of Testing to get all the training and support you need to take the next step in testing. With Pro, you get to access online test bash events, attend weekly online 99-minute workshops, take online courses in your own time, and watch all of our previous test bash talks and masterclass videos. You even get special discounts for future events and coaching sessions. So take the next step as a tester and go pro with Ministry of Testing. Welcome to Test Free Roulette, a podcast where my panel guests could be asked to discuss any testing topic decided by randomly selected test free cards. I'm your host, Christopher Kikinger. Let's start testing. Hello, and welcome to the Test Free Roulette podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Kikinger, and I've got two new awesome people here with me, and I'll let them introduce themselves Dave and Tammy. Tammy, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, my name is Tammy, and um, I reside in um, on the East Coast. Um, basically, um, by day, I am a mobile quality engineer for a company. Um, I've had over, let's see, about, I would say, between five and seven years of experience as a software tester, but I have been in information technology for over 20-something-plus years. Um, a fun fact about me, which I have several of them, um, I do like collecting international Barbie dolls. That's true. And okay. <laughs> yes, I'm looking for the next international one. And how, how, also, how many Barbie dolls do you have? So far, I have six. Okay. Yes, six of them. But I'm, I'm looking to at least get 20 of them, hopefully. That's my goal. <laughs> And another fun fact about me is I just love watching the animal shows. Anything like Dr. Pole, the veterinarian, Dr. Um, Yukon Oakley, um, all of those animal shows, I definitely like. Um, so that's that's it for me. All right. Uh, how about you, Dave? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, thanks very much, uh, Dave Harrison. Uh, I currently work as a quality coach and a quality discipline practice lead for a business unit inside one of the uh, bigger fintechs in the U.S. and North America. Uh, I have been uh, working in testing now for 34 years, uh, still surviving, got, got everything still intact. <laughs> uh, really enjoy, enjoy the work and enjoy the work with the people. Uh, little known fact about me, in the early days of my testing career, I also juggled working as a host of a morning radio show and a uh, nighttime sports uh, TV talk show. All right. That's nice to know. I didn't know you did that. Um, so let's play a little game of Test Fear Roulette. Um, how the game works? For the people that are listening, I'll spin the wheel. The wheel will land on a random Test Fear Roulette card. Well, Test Fear card. Um, I'll read the title and I'll read the summary. Maybe one of the three um, examples on it, and then we'll discuss our experience, or if it's a question, then if you agree or not. All right, I'm going to spin the wheel, and let's do this. All right, 
Um, the wheel landed on a orange card. It's a patron card. Superficial. Don't care whether it works or has a purpose. Does it look? Um, does it at least look dashing? I guess some of you might have an experience with that. Anyone want to take it? I mean, you're, you're always you're always going to see you're always going to see, uh, or not always. You, often you're going to see um, minor functionality issues in a one release or the first release of a new feature. Um, you know, early in my career, you were operating off of a zero defect metaphor, where or you know, standard, where you know, if you miss something as a tester, it was trouble, and, and you know, eventually it made it back to the developers to fix. But it, it, it was really the who tested this. Um, nowadays, you see a lot more um, approaches to getting something out there and failing fast, or having there be an acknowledgement that the business value of the new feature is greater than any risk associated with what could be a, a minor defect that you could fix very quickly and deploy very quickly. So I've definitely seen an evolution of that approach uh, over the course of my career. Yeah, exactly. Um, Tammy, do you have something to add? Yeah, so piggybacking off of what Dave said, totally agree. Like nowadays, yeah, it's, especially from the experience I have, um, Currently, they just want like the minimal viable product to go out, um, especially if it's like you know just minimum viable, the product that you know that they can be able to do, and over time they can just keep on adding more features or tweaking the information. I mean, the product itself um, for the customers. So um, superficial. <laughs> um, I'll put a question mark on that one. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, read one of the examples on the card. Um, do the colors match? Which feelings do they bring out in people? Have you guys ever like tested something like this before with your customers? This is this is this is an interesting one for me because um, most of the places I've worked, the the UI well the UX right so colors and fonts and sizes have typically been the domain of, you know, settle that with the business, get their buy-in early, and then go implement. Um, but at a recent place I worked, I started raising these small concerns at that level. And I would disclaimer them by saying, hey, yeah, I know this isn't really traditional software testing, but I want to offer this feedback to you. And it turned out that the feedback was valid. that resulted in changes. So one of the executives took me aside at that point and said, and said speak up if you don't see something that you think is right. It's awesome that they actually did something with it because, like, a lot of the times they just go like, "Oh, it's just a, it's just a color," but it matters, like, for real. Right, and I want to add to that too. Um, it does matter in a sense, um, especially, um, especially from my previous job. I know that the UX designers um, used to use a lot of the um, standards, such as USWDS, to determine like these are the good colors. But not only does it um, deal with colors and how the fonts or the icons look. It also um, syncs with um, accessibility, which is one of my favorite things. So those two, in my opinion, go hand in hand with each other, even though you're working with colors, but you also need to make sure that it's accessible for other users as well. And yep. to follow those standards or guidelines um, to make sure everyone can be able to, you know, be able to use that or be able to see it from the customer experience perspective. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to read one more example on this card. Um, do you see people working with this app all day and not get a headache? Um, you, you both have a lot of experience. You must have like <laughs> had a well, few headaches. <laughs> I mean, I, I've done I, I've done a lot of uh, work with uh, networking products and internetworking products. So something like a VPN client, where, where the actual UI is very minimal and the functionality is kind of the transport layer and, and the lower layers of network traffic passing back and forth. Um, and then more recently, applications I've worked with have largely been task-based and workflow-based, <clears throat> and they go through a tremendous amount of vetting by the business users. And if there's something <clears throat> that, that they want uh, surfaced for ease or, or ease of, more ease of use or more simplistic workflow, I mean, they'll speak to it and we'll do uh, everything we can to respond to them. Right. And I agree with that. There's always been, if there is frustration, uh, especially from um, other jobs that I've had, customers will definitely express their concerns. Um, but from my standpoint or my point of view, it's always been like, okay, are these the top priorities that they we really need to um, work on for them? Um, so we used to put them like in a category, you know, nice to have, must has, you know, not right mm -hmm. now type of thing um, for that. But again, um, when it comes down to working with web or mobile itself, um, they'll definitely express their concerns. And if it's really, really like a priority, like I said earlier, um, we try to implement that, research it, make sure it's okay um, for others to be able to use as well. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree as well. Um, do you guys want to move to a new cart? Okay. <laughs> okay, sure. All right. Um, spinning the wheel again. Here we go. A purple card, a feelings card, victimized. This actually comes pretty close to what you recently just said, uh, Dave. So it's a negative feeling. Um, something went wrong, and you're the one who's set up to take the blame. Ooh, yeah. Testers, uh, if something goes wrong and there's a bug in production, testers are always the one to blame. But. I don't always agree. <laughs> How about you guys? Well, yeah, that's always been the, you know, thing that, yeah, as a software tester, you're on to blame. But moving forward, hopefully, um, like where I'm at now, we really don't blame just the, you know, the quality engineer or the software tester. You know, when we find a bug, it's, you know, we all pitch in and we hurry up and find it, analyze it, and go on ahead and let the developer know, you know, that there is a bug and let's hurry up and fix it. But you're right, in most cases, the blame do, the blame do fall on the software testers and it's their fault. But again, how can we actually, you know, go about notating these things if this actually happens? But again, I just think that we should just work all as a group together, you know, when this actually happens. And just find the problem find the solution to the problem instead of just pinpointing on just one person. Correct. I couldn't agree more. How about you, Dave? 
Yeah, I, I made reference to it a moment a moment ago, but one of the one of the proudest aspects of my career, looking back to when I first started in testing to you know where it is now, is I've been able to work to influence cultures in organizations where there's whole team ownership to issues. And it's it's not necessarily defects. I mean, there there's issues. There's you know everything from deployments to documentation to missed requirements, and um, there was definitely tester as victim in the early stages of my career. But I've I've learned over time to try to put in in place and drive um, a focus on quality throughout an organization, not just at the tester level. And to change the viewpoint that te- that software testers or QA testers are not end state inspectors, they are they are a discrete discipline inside of an SDLC. You know, we you know earlier involvement's better, right? That that and that that can that can ensure or protect against victimization if you get your testers involved early on. But where where I'm working now, it, it's an approach of whole team quality, actually whole organization quality, where we tell people from day one that join us that, that, that each day, each team member has an opportunity to influence quality. They can influence it positively or not positively, but they should be taking time to think about that in their actions and get people to think about that as just second nature, that they will take the action to positively impact quality. And as a result, when teams do encounter issues, they're talking through them, they're working through them. And it's been rare that it's just been a flat out tester miss. I mean, I think I can think back to one from like four years ago where it was like, oh yeah, the tester missed that, right? We gotta, you know, educate the tester, make sure they understand the product better. Everything else has been has been team owned and typically team root caused. Yeah, a lot of um there has been a lot of evolution in this process, but um, like um, I'm going to read like the first example here, and then I'm going to add something to it. Um, the product went live, but bugs were found. Finger points at you. Why didn't you find that bug? I think like still in a lot of organizations, this still happens. And I was wondering if you guys had any advice for those testers who get blamed. I mean, I, I would offer that these these situations are learning opportunities, and the and the organization that they're a part of should not be um, implementing a blame culture. They should be implementing a learning and growth culture. There should be an opportunity to demonstrate that there's a gained, uh, or there's 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 opportunity for knowledge gained, or a, a broader takeaway for a better tester experience working on a project team, and would really do everything I could to work with leaders to present to them the options uh, besides blaming that in the long run could be much better for, for a team and a testing uh, approach. Right. Yeah, and I think-, I think one of those things too is what Dave was saying is when you do this, instead of just saying, why didn't you catch this? Sometimes, I mean, it happens. Um, I think as I'm reading like, the certification, sometimes it's difficult to test everything. You know, you may miss something. But I think from my experience, this, I mean, it was, it didn't, it happened that I did miss something, um, but it wasn't the blame game on me. But from my learning experience, I learned that the key is to just document it, like in your Confluence page, share it with other people. Yes, at first I have to admit, I was like blaming myself, myself, like, 
why didn't I get this? Why didn't I figure this out? Why didn't I do this? That was on me. Um, but then I started saying to myself, you know, why don't I just document it and share it with the team that I have? Like, hey, you know, everyone, hello team. This is something that I missed in my testing. So moving forward, this is something that you probably also want to include as part of your testing. So again, even though I blame myself, um, you could, like Dave said, there's learning opportunities to put it on the Confluence page to share it with the team and said, this was my problem as well that I had experienced, but I don't want you also to have the same situation that I had encountered. Yeah, I think like if people are really blaming you for not finding a bug, then it's just some kind of toxic culture, if I can say it like that. And I would just get out of there because there's yeah. so many more uh, but better companies who do better. Like I had mentioned, like for me, I felt like, man, why did I not get it? Why, what happened? What did I miss? That was me, and you know, victimizing True. myself. Like, why didn't I? Um, and such, but yeah, I just turned around and say, let me just put this in documentation for the whole entire team. At the end, we're all still human and 100% test coverage. We all know that doesn't exist. So. Yeah, I mean, but if the anti-pattern is blame, the blame should really, or the, the pattern to, to cure that would be to reinforce the motivation of each team member who, you know, we used to, we used to make this statement that people aren't pulling into the office or people aren't stepping off the train to walk into the office every day thinking, hey, how can I mess things up, right? They're, they're walking in thinking, how can I be part of the solution here? How can I help things be better, right? Exactly. So blame, blame goes against that. What we should be doing is we should be reinforcing learning cultures. And you know, there's checkpoints and mentoring that can take place in these situations. There's all kinds of other options to take that are better for organizations than blame. Blame is the easy human reaction that can largely be emotional driven or could carry additional agendas. There's, there's a whole list of, of alternative reactions besides blame that are better in the long run. Yeah, the main goal is finding the solution to the problem and also just trying to make sure that the product that you're you know working with is good for the customers so that they will not end up complaining so much. So at the end of the day, that's what we that's the accomplishment or the goal that, you know, I see um, on my behalf. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's, let's draw a new card. Um, I'm going to spin the wheel again. Here goes. It landed on a green card, which is a technique okay. requirements re-engineering. Find your own requirements, review and discuss. What can you learn from discussions? Hmm. How often <laughs> do you guys have to find your own requirements? Tammy? Well, in this case, um, I want to can you clarify that a, um, a little bit more as far as like requirements when it comes down to the specifications for a new product or um, it's already written up by the product manager? Let me read one of the examples then. Okay. Um, create your own list of personal requirements. Compare your list with the client's list. What can the both of you learn from them? It sounds like specifications. Am I right, Dave? 
Well, when I when I hear that, I think about the um, the the need for software development teams to be um, able to listen to customer wants, needs, desires, and hear that as the what. What is it that the customer wants? And then there's a translation that has to take place between the what and what ends up being the how, which is the implementation from the team, which responds to the customer, takes into account what the customer is looking for, but also might have to have a balance found between things that are either uh, very complex, could take years, (laughs) or could have a, a cost of implementation that a customer might have wants, needs, and desires, but might not have the budget to deliver it. So there, there ends up being that two-way <clears throat> exchange. You know, typically you have like a business analyst or a project or a product manager or you know somebody mm-hmm. in the middle there. Um, that's how I hear that. Um, okay, I guess on our end we do call it requirements, <clears throat> but we also put them into what is called specifications from the client. So yeah, I just yeah. wanted to be clear. So okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a great story about a project, a product team that I worked on one time where the executives resigned, and we ended up producing our own requirements for a uh, a, a patient healthcare portal, and all we did was just add features that we thought we would want in a patient healthcare portal, and <laughs> that went on that went on for like six to nine months, and then the company we were working for decided to kill the product. And then we all got much better jobs. And then the company came back to us like two years later saying, you know, you know, they figured it out now. They want you guys back to finish this product. And we're like, yeah, we, we all moved on. But you, you, you all did such a good job. You had no, you know, you, you came up with your own requirements for them. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we just, we just, we acted like a patient and decided what we would want is in a healthcare portal. And we, we implemented it. So. That's a very nice story. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll read like uh, another example on the card. Okay. If you jump into legacy applications, quite often there are no requirements, but your test results are desperately needed because nobody knows what the app actually does and what it should do. Have you ever been in this kind of situation? And what did you do? I can hear you laugh, Dave. (laughs) Yes. I'll go for it, Tammy. Yes, I've been in a situation where it was a legacy, there was no documentation, um, trying to find out like what to do with it per se. Um, but from from what I did when it came down to legacy, I tried to just look at the overall view um, of the legacy application without documentation. So I tried to go in and figure it out. Also, I had um, other problems with people, I mean, asking people, how does this work? And I get, I don't know. Or I get like, um, I'm not sure. Um, So for me, it's like when I get that, I just start like trying to figure it out myself. And then I went back in and started writing documentation like in Word or something to, you know, make sure I have some type of documentation for the legacy. But yes, it does happen. And sometimes even with you, applications from my experience it has happened too where there was no documentation or it was outdated and you have to go back in and figure it out yourself really with new applications yeah wow (laughs) i worked yeah it was a small company so i think they didn't have like resources or time to do a lot of it yeah 
the, the, the only thing I can add to that is what you described uh, as a challenge around legacy systems. But what if you layer on top of that, that it was extremely difficult to generate test data for that legacy system? So, I mean, most of the last 20 years of my career have been systems that were not standalone. They all interconnected with something, right? It was either something that fed something upstream or, you know, it, it, it fed something downstream or received something upstream. So what we would do is we would, uh, in that case, we would simulate data to be introduced to the system as an output from one of those um, you know, downstream systems. And then we would look at the output being brought into the upstream system. And we would essentially, we would essentially test the integration and have that be uh, uh, residual coverage of the legacy system. And I mean, it was, you know, it was mainframe, it was very difficult to introduce test data to it. You didn't have people that, that knew the systems. So all we could do was work with the systems that we did know. And then, as I said, end up with that residual test coverage going through the legacy system. Yep. Sounds lovely. I, yeah, I think the struggle like between what Dave and I are saying is sometimes not knowing what the system is about and trying to ask, you know, about it. That's the, that's the challenge there. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's do one more card to finish okay. it up. We're going to spin the wheel again. Um, it's another orange card. It's a pattern card again. It's called Force. Sometimes brute force is key. The more, the bigger, and the more powerful, the better. I think you could interpret this in many ways. So how do you guys see it? I, I, I hear force, but um, over the course of my career, I feel like influence has had more long-term value. Um, the use of force in an organization gets somebody a victory on a given day or possibly in a given circumstance in a given day. But whereas if you have you know, somebody that has influence, that has established working relationships across all the disciplines inside a, an SDLC and has established credibility with them and understands, understands their point of view, and constantly drives a message of customer advocacy and quality bottom line and how everybody contributes to it. <clears throat> I found that influence has had um, better long-term successes than, than force. Force just leads to intimidation. It leads to cultures of fear in the workplace. And it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't scale. It has, it has a very short shelf life. Um, let me read one of the examples. Uh, got an app that can upload files, create the biggest file you can, and try to squeeze that through the system. I think force on this card was maybe more meant for uh, like size performance testing, but I like your way on, on understanding the card and so the interpretation of it. Do I have a chance to recover from that then? With a <laughs> I don't think it should be an alternative. I think it was a good answer as well. Yeah, I mean, when uh, yeah, I've worked with teams that are testing payment terminals that have signature screens on them, right? They're screens like this big, and you get a little stylus, and you have to sign. Okay, 
all that's doing is converting that signature to a bitmap, and it shows that you know somebody did something in that screen, right? An interesting test. I'm not telling anybody to go to a st store and do this. Is to make that is to make that screen as colored in as possible as you can, which then creates a much larger compressed bitmap, which then gets uploaded into a transaction processing system, and could have some interesting results. That's actually very interesting. I'm definitely going to do that. Advising <laughs> <laughs> anybody do that, right? I'm not just uh, talk about force. That's my that's my most recent example of force. Able to do this. <laughs> Uh, s s something that uh, is written here on um, another example is make sure you always have permission. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Tammy, do you have any experience with, for example, large files or something performance-wise? Um, not necessarily, I don't. Um, but I know like performance te um, testing or performance plays a really big role, especially like like I mentioned, I work with mobile. So performance is the key when you're like testing on these, you know, different features and, you know, you see these cards and you're adding more. So it's really the key and um, when it comes down to testing, but I don't, not too much I can say on that at this point. All right. Um, Dave, any last words? Well, I tried to give two examples of force. Maybe this is a really good manifestation of test your roulette because you, when you when you spin that wheel, you never know what kind of answers you're going to get from the participants. So. Definitely, and that's totally why we do this as well. <laughs> so everybody has their own perspective of it. Um, thank you guys for joining me on this podcast. Um, I guess that's a wrap up. How do people get in touch with you, Dave? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Davidora, D-A-V-A-D-O-R-A. -A -A. Uh, also reachable on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm based in South Carolina in the United States and uh, should be pretty easily searchable there. Uh, don't have any uh, speaking uh, engagements coming up, but I am uh, working some ideas on how quality coaches are influencing organizations now versus um, what we're seeing a lot of presentations now on what quality coaching is and what it can be. Um, I'm preparing some case studies that uh, are going to turn into abstracts that hopefully uh, get accepted by some places uh, around the world where I can speak uh, to audiences about them. Already looking forward to it. Uh, how do people get in touch with you, Tammy? Sure. Um, they can get in touch with me on Twitter um, as well. Um, it's DC Tech Sister, T E C H S I S T A, which I'm based in the DC metropolitan area. Um, also, they can find me. Um, they can also check out the blog that I just created, and it's for beginners. It's a software tester for beginners at developbit.com. And um, also on Facebook at Develop Bit Quality. Um, that's the, yeah, that's on Facebook. And also, too, um, as an update, I'm working on, I have to go back in and record um, a webinar that I'm working on for accessibility. So hopefully I can do um, after that one a little bit more um, presentations on accessibility. All right. Um, thank you guys again for being here on this podcast. Um, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in on the Test Fury Lab podcast. See you guys next time for a new game of Test Fury Lab. Thank you.
thank you to the guests and thank you for listening. For more information about TestSphere, check out restormingonline.com or buy the car tech from the Ministry of Testing store. Music at the courtesy of sapsplat.com. We'll see you for more roulette again soon.